1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an antoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and him in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So, welcome everyone, and if you're new to Grace Church Manchester, welcome, and you're joining us partway through a series in John's first letter, a fairly short letter quite near the end of the New Testament. And if this is your regular church, then welcome back, and we're continuing the series in the letter of 1 John, exploring a very famous section, chapter 4, verses 7 to 21 which we just had read to us. So let's keep looking closely at those verses in our Bibles or on our phones, and let's gradually get more and more into the text. At first glance, we can see that these verses start and end with love. Look at the start of verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And look at the end of verse 21. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. There are also very well-known phrases which are famous even outside of Christianity, like, God is love. Look at it at the end of verse 8. God is love. And there's the same well-known phrase again. Look at it halfway through verse 16. God is love. A bit later on, look at another famous line, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. I thought I'd test the popularity of that by typing that phrase into YouTube. We love because he first loved us, song. 
and I got all sorts of hits. Songs that catered for different ages, songs in different styles, songs from different parts of the world, songs with different energy levels, everything you can think of. Okay, so on the surface, verses 7 to 21 are very well-known verses. They start and end with love. They focus on God's love and ours. John's short, punchy way of expressing really deep truths helps us commit truth to memory. And songs can help us do that, you know, quickly access and, and memorize simple yet profound Christian truths. But digging a bit deeper, John's writing style is also the kind of writing style of someone who clearly wants his readers to know exactly what he means. In our Bibles, let's look a little bit more closely at these verses. They're full of words like for and because and since. Look at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Or look at verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Or verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And there are phrases that indicate John really wants to explain something further, like, this is how, verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. And these are just examples from the very first paragraph, right? So in addition to short, memorable, profound phrases, John's very careful here. This should caution us against just taking the short little phrases in isolation. We might miss the point. Oh, uh, God is love. I can define love to be whatever I make of it. These verses are too carefully put together to leave that kind of option open to us. And no wonder we're talking about love here. And how we should live our lives as Christians and what the nature of God is. The stakes are high, so no wonder John is careful. So in turn, we need to pay close attention to what John focuses on here. I've been as careful as I can myself, and if we could have the next slide, please, I've put together a three-sentence summary of what I think John is saying here, which I hope we'll be looking at with discernment and testing against what Scripture itself says. Of course, I hope the summary also helps you navigate the sermon and if you're taking notes, don't worry, it's going to stay up for the whole length of the sermon. So, God's love is outward-facing, initiative-taking, and Christ-exalting. It expels fear and hatred from the lives of Christians. This love is the solid foundation for love in the Christian community because it empowers Christians to love like God does. God's love is outward-facing, initiative-taking, and Christ-exalting. It expels fear and hatred from the lives of Christians. This love is the solid foundation for love in the Christian community because it empowers Christians to love like God does. Can we have the next slide, please? So, I have two points, and my first point covers verses 7 to 12. It's a question. Love? Why should we? And what do we mean here? Why, as in, 
what is our motivation? What is the connection that John makes between our love down here as Christians and this supernatural declaration at the end of verse 8, God is love? And, and what do we mean? As in, love has many definitions and many practical outworkings, and we've seen some of them already in previous parts of John's letter. But what's John's focus here when he talks about God's love and ours? Let's follow John as he goes from us in verse 7 upwards to that famous line, God is love, at the end of verse 8, and then back down to us in verses 9 to 12. To use John's language, it's a bit like following a ray of sunshine back to its source, the sun, and then from that perspective, coming back again from the sun to the earth. I'm not a graphic designer. I've done the best I can to... uh, Yeah, I see the graphic designers chuckling in here. Um, So basically, if you follow from the left, that's us, Christian love, and we go upwards to this yellow sun-like God is love, follow the arrow backwards, and then we come back down to us. So God is love is verse 8 in the middle, okay? Okay, so love. Why should we? I'm assuming that If today you or I call ourselves Christians, we consider ourselves included in the us of verse 7. Look at it. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Let us love one another. John exhorts, he commands us, the Christian community, to love each other. Why? For or because love comes from God. So the simple answer to love, why should we, is that for Christians, love comes from God. This is important. The love that Christians are to exhibit is not a product of well-functioning human society. That's not what John is saying. This love is divine in origin. The love that Christians should show is not natural. It's not natural. We didn't make it up, and we don't get the direct credit for it. John says it is supernatural, from God. The love that Christians should embody is not a casual, optional feature of our religion. This isn't a secondary and debated issue of faith. No, love is central because it comes directly from God. Let's keep following this ray of light from our Christian love back to its source in God in the next part of verse 7. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So John just raised the stakes even more, right? It's not like we can take the first half of verse 7 and conclude, oh yeah, love comes from God, so the connection is God's like, here you go, humans, or even, here you go, Christians, there's a bit of love. I'm going to deposit it with you over there, spread it around. No, born of God, that's family and identity language. It's not distant. It's intimate. And knows God, that's the language of relationship and understanding, John is talking about something that is personal, that is ongoing, that can be appreciated, whose value is grasped. If Grace Church Manchester is characterized by love, 
This is evidence that we are God's children and that we know him. It's as much of a no-brainer as saying rays of sunlight come from the sun. And let's follow this now to the heart of the matter in verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. John gives us a negative and a positive. If we call ourselves Christians and our lives are not characterized by love, this is a big problem. It's not an optional identity marker for Christians. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Positively, because God is love. And this is the heart of what John is saying. God sets the standard of what love is. It's so central to the character, to the nature of God, that, God, that John can say God is the very embodiment of love. Not love is God. No, we're not to worship whatever love is and somehow make that into a God. No, if we truly know God, then we know the one who is love personified. David Allen in the Preach the Word series puts it like this. Just as light radiates from the sun, love radiates from God's very nature. Just as light radiates from the sun, love radiates from God's very nature. And at this point, we might wonder, okay, John is clearly connecting God's love and ours, but what do we mean here? What do we mean by love here? Is it friendship love, romantic love, costly sacrificial love, general communal love, all of the above? It's important too because there's a very legitimate question that might be asked. Well, how do you know? How do you know God is love? Where's the evidence? This is especially the case when we believe God is invisible, supernatural, other. How can you know? And I'm also assuming we need to know as Christians. This God that we worship is love personified. Is he? Are you sure? How can you be sure? Consider the implications for your prayer life, for the way you relate to God, for the songs that we sing, for your evangelism. John takes these issues and questions seriously and tells us exactly what his focus is here. And this is where the first of my three summary sentences comes from at the top of the slide. God's love is outward-facing, initiative-taking, and Christ-exalting. God's love is outward-facing, initiative-taking, and Christ-exalting. Where have I taken that from? Well, did you notice, as soon as John declares God is love, at the end of verse 8, look at it, he immediately follows it in verse 9 with, this is how. Do we want to know? Well, this is how God showed his love among us. So let's follow the ray of sunlight from God back to us and see John's emphasis through the language he uses. Listen to just how many outward and initiating words and phrases he uses in verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed 
his love among us. The invisible God shows what his nature, what his loving character is like. He sent his one and only son. That which was most precious to the Father is sent, is given, comes from the Father to us into the world that we might live through him. Jesus is incarnated, is given substantial form that we can relate to and takes on our full humanity so that we in turn can take on his life and have everlasting life through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We didn't make the first move. God did. We don't need to build towers to reach the heavens, and we'd never get there anyway. No, God makes the first move. Does that make sense? Outward-facing, initiative-taking love. This is what John's focus is here, and I hope this encourages us. The invisible God has made himself known. In fact, earnestly desires that he is known and has done everything possible to make it so. The beautiful, worthy God, who is love, makes the first move to share himself. This is why I think God is so often described as glorious. Glory, as in the beauty, the awesomeness, the love, just radiates out from him. It's in his nature to be self-giving, 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 always. And then at the end of verse 10, John gets really specific. Sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you skip down a little bit, that's picked up again in verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. This is Christ exalting. That is to say, the act in history which we can connect with and understand which most definitively shows the outward, initiating love of God the Father, is the cross. Do you want to know if God wants to connect with you, wants to show himself and his nature to you? Look at the cross of Christ. There you will see how far God will go to initiate a relationship with you. There you will see God taking the initiative to remove the barrier, sin, to you experiencing his love. There you will see the way to God, magnifying and honoring and exalting his son, Jesus Christ, who is the only one who reconciles us to God, whose life, death, and resurrection are the only means by which we can access God's love, who is the only one worthy to undertake that mission, who was, is, and will be the center point of all God's plans forever and ever. So do you want to know what we mean here about God's love? Well, here in these verses, John wants you to know that God's love is outward-facing, initiative-taking, and Christ-exalting. And the implications for us are vast, do we call ourselves Christians? Well, then, let's love like that. Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, as in like that, we also ought to love one another. 
So let's ask ourselves, Grace Church, are we like that? Is our love outward-facing like God's? Are there Christians in this congregation who you avoid because you find them weird? Or the more sophisticated version, they don't have the same interests as you. Or they're not the same age as you, or they're married, or they're single. If so, that's inward, not outward. I don't think evangelism is is John's main point here, but how on earth can we face outwards to share the good news of Jesus with the entire world if we can't be outward-facing here in church? Is our love for each other initiative-taking? Brothers and sisters, is there someone in this congregation or in your life group that you aren't talking to at the moment? If appropriate, might it be that you can initiate reconciliation and not wait for the other person? Just imagine how much we could reduce conflict in the church if the tendency for all of us was to initiate, not wait for reconciliation. God initiated reconciliation with us. And what about contributing to church life? Using your talents and gifts to bless the congregation and show your love for them. Why wait? Don't wait to be asked. Why not initiate a meeting with a life group leader or with the senior pastor Pete Horlock or someone in charge of an area of ministry like Kids Club or Music or Welcome? And why not think through Where are the gaps here, and how can I intelligently, graciously offer help? And Christ-exalting, God the Father loves to honor his Son. All praise and glory of God is channeled through Christ his Son. Is our love for each other inseparably bound up with the glory of Christ? Are we pointing each other to Christ? How is your walk with Jesus going, or whatever the modern version of that question is, is that something that you consider an awkward question? But shouldn't it be the lifeblood of our love for each other? What about the way that you think of and address other Christians? Notice John's term of affection at the start of this section. Dear friends, John's doing it. When you speak to another brother or sister in Christ, are you thinking of them in that way? Family, made into family through Christ. Is your affection for them clear in the way that you talk to them? This is the kind of thing that makes us into the community God would have us be. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Amazing. One of the ways God's love is outward-facing, initiative-taking, and Christ-exalting is that he creates a community which is outward-facing and initiative-taking and Christ-exalting in its love, and so brings to completion his love in and through that community, us. 
That is to say, we, the church, when operating like this and exhibiting this kind of love, we are the fulfillment of God's mission for his glorious, loving nature to be embodied, visible. That's how God wants to accomplish it. Phenomenal that God wants to do that through us. Is this what we look like? I'm assuming there are visitors to Grace Church here today. Is this what we look like as a church? John says, this is what we should be. If we could have the next slide, please. But that's a high calling, isn't it? Tough to put yourself out there, face outwards, make yourself vulnerable, taking initiative like that. To keep honoring Christ in all your efforts to love other Christians. Isn't that exhausting? And won't it break us and maybe break our hearts? What resources are we given to help us love like that? And there are opposing forces too. It's not like this radical call to love is against a neutral background. We'll have to persevere against both internal and external forces which will work against our efforts to love. So this brings us to the second final point, and this covers verses 13 to 21. Assurance that God loves you. Assurance that God loves you. Fuel for God-like love and a force against fear and hate. So far, we've talked about love as central to the nature of God, and that God wants his love to be known, and he also wants it to be shown in the community he makes. But what about you, you personally? As John writes at the start of verse 13, this is how we know that, he lives, that we live in him and he in us. Do you know that you live in God and that he lives in you? Or as verse 16 puts it, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Do you know the love God has for you? How can you know? Where does John direct us to gain such confident assurance? Let's listen to him carefully again, starting at verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. So, John says that if we want to know that we live in the God of love and the God of love lives in us, a sure sign of this is that the Spirit of God has been given to us. How would we know that? Well, as we've seen before, John gives us an immediate answer. He even starts with the word and in verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So what's that got to do with the Spirit? Well, we can find out from the way John has talked about the Spirit before in this letter, and generally the way John talks about the Spirit. The most recent example was in the verses we looked at last week. Cast your eye back to chapter 4, verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Notice the close association between the Spirit and acknowledging truth about Jesus Christ. 
We won't look in detail now, but if you want to follow up later, here are some other examples in this letter when John mentions the Spirit of God right next to testifying or acknowledging or proclaiming truth about Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Or going backwards, chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. I'll say that again for those who are taking notes. Chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. In fact, having looked almost exhaustively at this letter, I've yet to find anywhere that John mentions the Spirit without the immediate context being truth about Jesus Christ. He also takes the same approach several times in his gospel. Here's the most concise example I could find. John 15, verses 26 to 27. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Now let's compare that with 1 John 4, starting at verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Do you see, it's the same pattern everywhere. And this connects directly with the outward-facing, initiative-taking, Christ-exalting love of God that John showed us earlier. If we want to know personally the God who is love, then one of the things that flows out from him that is outward and where he takes initiative is his spirit which he gives to believers. So Christians should expect this gift. And how do you know you have the Spirit? Well, do you, with John, acknowledge the Christ-exalting truth about how God shows his love in the world? Verse 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Isn't that also reassuring? Embracing Christ-exalting truth is the evidence that the Spirit lives in you. And I want to really just encourage us to put our roots deep down into this, and I hope helpfully to speak into some real worries that Christians often have, myself included. Christians, what are we basing our assurance on that we're part of God's family and that he loves us? Is your assurance based on something experiential? As in circumstance, emotional response. What's happening in our lives is of course important, as is our emotional response to God and his character. God made us emotional beings who have the capacity to respond to him in this expressive, sensitive way. Let's thank God for every appropriate emotional response to his glory. But that's not the 
basis of our assurance. We need a much more secure foundation than the changeable seasons of life. And if we take the current societal view of our emotions, which seems to be that they're basically infallible, this isn't a good foundation either, because the Bible's view is that the way we respond to God needs to be renewed like every other aspect of our humanity. Such renewal is why Jesus came. And this is, this is not in my notes, but as someone who leads musical worship, um, you know, sometimes I find myself doing this, I'm trying to be honest here. I uh, sometimes am thinking, well, am, am I really feeling this here? But that's backwards. That's not the right way around. My emotional response to God is not the basis of my assurance of whether he loves me. Is rationality or reason the basis of your assurance? Maybe you've done a lot of reading and logically you've worked out that Christianity is the best way. You can articulate sound arguments for the gospel which stand up to scrutiny and you've read and critiqued Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Well, thank God that he gives us minds that can work things out. And thank God that because the gospel is true, it can be argued for and logically defended. But this isn't the basis of our assurance. Our, our reason, our rationality, like the rest of our humanity, needs to be renewed. And besides, remember how God's love is initiative-taking. We wouldn't know him anyway unless he'd chosen to reveal himself in the first place. Is tradition what you use for your assurance? Again, in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, thank God for every good tradition. Coming from a Christian home has value. Attending a church whose liturgy you can connect with, also good. Do you listen to helpful podcasts by sound preachers with a solid pedigree in the tradition of Bible-believing churches? Great. Still not the basis of our assurance. The basis of our assurance is how God acts towards us in outward-facing, initiative-taking love, especially as so clearly and definitively seen in Jesus Christ. Do you believe... And in John's words in verse 16, rely on the love God has for us. This is the solid foundation. When all else is stripped away, have you put your full weight on the love God has for you as he has demonstrated it in Christ? Can I appeal to you? Any other foundation cannot give you assurance of your secure status in God's family. And when it comes to the time, the time, when all else is stripped away and all other foundations crumble, judgment day, you really will need to know the love of God. Notice this is immediately where John goes next in verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. This is why John goes to judgment day when talking about assurance. If you can be assured 
and confident that God loves you on that day, that day when the God who perfectly embodies love will judge all of us by that perfect standard of love, then what could possibly be a greater test of your assurance than that? Let's work this through for a moment. On that day, what comfort will emotion or reason or tradition provide or anything else? The only things that will matter then are, does God know and love you? So look how John sandwiches Judgment Day between the same two encouragements he's been talking about all along. Verse 16, God is love. Let's not forget what the God of love is like. I think that's why John repeats that so close to talking about Judgment Day. On that day, what will matter is, do you know and rely on the God of love? As in, have you totally relied on the outward-facing, initiative-taking love of God, whose center of gravity is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to which the Spirit testifies? And the rest of verses 16 and 17. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. So what is a key piece of evidence that you are totally relying on God's love? Well, do you show that you believe God's outward-facing, initiative-taking, Christ-exalting love has real-world value? Are you really a participant in God's mission to make his love tangible in the real world, starting with your brothers and sisters in Christ. As the end of verse 17 puts it, in this world, are you like Jesus? Or as some translations say, as he is, so also are we in the world. As in, do you look like, act like, embody God's love here? To use John's language of light again, if we claim that the ray of sunlight from God has warmed us up with the purpose of spreading that warmth to others, well, we can soon see if there's any actual warmth spreading, right? And this is the fuel, isn't it, for loving like God. If you are convinced of God's ceaseless character of love, connected to it through faith in Christ, and confident of God's love, even on Judgment Day, then you're safe, aren't you? Safe to engage in outward-facing, initiative-taking, Christ-centered love. Like verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear is an opposing force to outward-facing, initiative-taking, Christ-exalting love because fear turns us inward on ourselves. Fear puts obstacles in the way of initiative. Fear makes us focus on punishment instead of our freedom to love, bought with the blood of Christ. Are you afraid to initiate reconciliation with a brother or sister because you fear rejection? or how the conversation will go, or maybe 20 other things. You see how fear tends to push and turn us inward 
in the best case scenario, you want the relationship of love with your brother or sister to be restored, right? But I think John's message to us is that we try to do this backwards. Don't try and be reconciled here on earth first, and should that go well, have a nice emotional response, and rely on that temporary emotion to, to conclude, well, I must be right with God. No, that's backwards. First, establish how reliable God's love is for you, especially looking at the cross. Preach it to yourself. Maybe use this chapter of 1 John. Then, when you're assured of God's love, even to the point of having confidence before him on judgment day, then you will have the resources, like courage, to initiate acts of love within the fellowship of Christians. And like stamina, to keep persevering when, other, when loving other Christians is tough. Because you're connected to God, the fountain of love, we, we sang about that earlier, the fountain of love who keeps giving and giving and giving and never runs dry. And relying on that resource, you then start to see God's love perfected, brought to completion here in Grace Church. Let's look at the final few verses from verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. At this point, after all John has said to us, I think we could even say, well, of course, right? Of course. We love because he first loved us. He's been saying that all along, as in, this is another reminder that it's God who takes the initiative here. We didn't figure this out. God showed us how to love like this. Verse 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Well, that has to be the case, doesn't it? How does hatred work against outward-facing, initiative-taking, Christ-exalting love? Well, hatred turns us outward in the wrong way. Hatred makes us take destructive initiative. What hatred does is, instead of focusing on how Christ turned away God's wrath from us, it makes us perpetuate vengeance on others and use our own hands to do it. I'll show them. I'll get them for that. Of course. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Do we claim that we're connected to the God of love, this invisible, supernatural source of light whose purpose in connecting with us is to create a warmth that radiates out in beautiful warmth and love, but our hearts are cold and hard and unloving towards fellow Christians. It doesn't fit. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Or if you prefer, to phrase it positively, John gives us a command. It's not love in theory, 
but it should issue forth in activity which can be seen in the way we love each other as Christians, not just claims like, I love God. Anybody could say that, right? So I want to end with an exhortation to us all. Can we, as Christians today, this coming week, reflect long, hard, and deep on the breathtaking love that God has for us? Outward-facing, initiative-taking, Christ-exalting love. Secure enough that Judgment Day can actually be a day of confidence. With that love as our foundation and as our fuel, can we engage, maybe starting today, in outward-facing, initiative-taking, Christ-exalting love for each other? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our foundation is solid because it's you. Because it's your love which you went to such great lengths to show us. I pray for Christians in this congregation. I pray for myself for those of us who have a tendency to, to try and rely on something else and, and go backwards into your love, which just doesn't work, please help us to put our roots down deep into what you have done, into what you have shown, into what we've seen of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, what more could you say to us